Heavenly Father, it is our hope, Lord, uh, that those words of that song that you will hold us fast. We know we do have hearts that are prone to, to wander. We need your amazing grace. All these songs that we've sung are so true of our hearts, God. We know that ultimately we come into this room with struggles. We come with our own sin. We come with our own failures. But Lord, we know you are victorious over all things. We know that you died for us so that we can be forgiven of our sin. We know that you've put your Holy Spirit within us. For those in this room who are believers, you've put your Holy Spirit in us to empower us to live a life 100% committed to you. I pray that as we come now to this time in our service where we open your word and we read it together and we study together and we respond to your word together, that as always, God, you would help us to have humble hearts. Help us in this time not to think arrogantly that we know better than you. We are not God. You are. And you love us. So help us to trust you this morning as we study what you have for us, this picture that we are made by your design. Thank you in advance for what you are going to do. It's in the name of Jesus we pray together. Amen. You may be seated. As you find your seat, if you could, go ahead and grab a Bible. If you brought one, great. If you didn't, there should be one in the seat under you or in front of you or somewhere around you. Uh, If you can find a Bible, go ahead and go to the very first book in the Bible. We're again going to be in Genesis. Uh, This time, not so much Genesis 1, but we're going to be in Genesis chapters 2 and 3. So go ahead and make your way there. It's at the very beginning of the Bible. We are in a series called By His Design where we are talking about the way that God made humanity and specifically what it means to be made a man and what it means to be made a woman in the image of God. Last week, we started this study together and we we started by saying this one foundational truth that because God alone is the creator, he alone is the authority, he alone can determine design and function. In other words, only God can come to every single one of you in this room and say, this is why you were made and this is how you work. He's our creator. The culture can try to give you those answers. They can come to you and they can say, this is for what purpose you are. or This is how you're to work. But the culture is constantly changing. The answers they give are constantly changing. Why? Because they are not the designer. God's word has been very clear about our purpose. He's been very clear about why we are made the way we are. And so he is the authority on this subject. That is the foundational truth. You see, the first thing we saw in Genesis chapter 1 is that he designed us, every single one of us, with immeasurable worth and value. Why? Because we are made in his image. You and I are different than anything else in all of creation. Did you think about that at all this week? The fact that that we are made in his image. We were made for relationship with him. We were given eternal souls. We We were given the capacity to reflect him like mirrors to the world. We were given the capacity to to represent him in the world. We are able to have relationship with the living God. We are unlike everything else, which means this, that men and women in this category are 100% the same. We are made with unbelievable worth and value equal in the sight of God. 
It's very important. God does not make mistakes with his design. You need to hear that this morning. God does not make junk. If you are here, it's because you are very valuable to God. And that's the starting place for in our understanding of this study. But the next two weeks, what I want us to do is I want us to move from that idea of how we're created the same, made in the image of God, that's important, to how we were created different. Now, Genesis 1.27 says these words. It says, so God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You see, no matter what culture may tell you this morning, gender is not a social construct. Gender differences are not an accident, nor are they imaginary, nor are they a result of sin. You need to hear that. Man and woman were created different before the fall of man and Adam and Eve into sin. They were part of God's original design. Which means this, there is a purpose behind God's design. There's a reason that some of us in this room are made to be men and some of us are made to be females. He has a purpose in that. And these differences that he created from the very beginning are very, very good. They have nothing to do with our value in front of God's eyes. God sees us as equal worth, equal value, and yet our differences were there with a purpose. He looks at man and woman created in the image of God, yet different. And what does he say? This is very good. The only time he uses that to describe anything in creation. So today I'm going to look about what the Bible says about the call of men. And then next week what we're going to do is we're going to look about what the Bible says about the call of women. Now, ladies, I would say this. While this message will focus on men, I would ask you not to just check out, okay? It's vitally important that you understand what the Bible says about men for two reasons. Number one, so that you can expect this from us. Number two, so that you can pray and encourage the people around you in this room to live up to what our calling is. So let's jump in. Other than this overall purpose that all mankind has of glorifying God, of being in a relationship, and what is the call of men? If you would, look at with me at chapter 2 of the book of Genesis. If you've never read the book of Genesis, Genesis 1 and 2 give complementary views of the creation of the world. They're not in competition with one another. They aren't against one another. They are complementary. They go together. Really what happens is Genesis 1 gives us a very general description of how God created all things. But then in chapter 2 what happens is he comes and he gets more specific. He points out how did God create men and women and what was his purpose in that. And so if you would, let's read in verse 7. Chapter 2, verse 7. The word of God says this. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, if you would go down to verse 15. It says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat For in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. 
So at this point, you have to remember that Eve is not on the scene yet. She's coming very quickly. But Adam is placed by God in the Garden of Eden, and he is commanded to do a few things. The most basic thing that Adam is commanded in this passage is simply this. God looks at Adam and he says, submit to me. Submit to me. I mean, you think about it. God gave Adam everything he needed. God breathed life. He gave breath to his nostrils. He gave him food. He gave him everything. And he says simply this, trust me as your designer. I am your creator. Trust me. I love you. Submit your life to me as creation. That is the role of all mankind. Now, men, let me just say this. If you don't understand this one thing, nothing else in the scriptures about what you're called to do is going to make any sense. Nothing else. If you don't understand that God is the authority of life, that he is the creator of life, and as his creation, we are to submit to him, that we are not God, he alone is God, you will not be able to do anything else that God calls you to do in the scriptures. It starts there. But then what, do we, what does it say? It says he placed man in the garden and he gave him two commands. He says, work it and keep it. In other words, what he tells Adam is, is I want you to go and to, to cultivate the garden. I want you to preserve it as an act of worship to me. Now, there's a lot of things that we could say about those two words, but there's one thing that is clear. Work, like gender, is not part of the fall of man into sin. Work was there from the beginning. Work is part of our design. In other words, what does this mean, men? It means this, that you were not created to be lazy. You were created from the very beginning to work, and this work was to be seen as an act of worship to God. It's very important as we think about our culture and how they see work. Uh, There was a quote by Charles Spurgeon, who I think is one of the greatest preachers of all time. 1800s, he says this, Some occupation is necessary to happiness. Lazy people would not enjoy even the Garden of Eden itself. They wouldn't enjoy it because why? We were created for work. We were not designed for never-ending leisure. We were not designed as men to, to just be really good at video games and to sit on the couch all day long. That's not part of our call. We were designed to work. He says, go into my world, cultivate it, preserve it as an act of worship. Now, there's two primary areas where, where men are called to lead in a unique way. And I say to lead in a unique way because here's the thing. Women also very clearly are leaders. Some of the most gifted women that I know, some of the best leaders that I know are women. So this is not a statement in the scriptures about general capabilities or strengths in general life. But there is a place in scripture that says that men are called to uniquely lead in cultivating and working and preserving in these two areas. And those two areas are the home and in the church. We're going to talk about both of those things this morning. Let's look first at the home. If you would, turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 5, or if that takes too long to get to it, it's going to be on the screen, okay? We're going to be looking at Ephesians 5 verse 25. In this passage, Paul begins to outline the role of men within the home with their families. We read this. It says, Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, 
I don't know of any passage in the scriptures that brings me to a place of confession and repentance more than that one verse. Because it is an extremely high calling. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. This morning, how, think about it, how did Jesus love the church? And the church being those he came to save, how did he love them? Did Jesus just tell us that he loved them? No. We learn from an early age, talk is cheap, right? Jesus' love was evidenced in action. And not just in his life, but more importantly, what did Jesus do? He sacrificed his life. He laid down his own life on the cross so that the church could have life. Apart from him laying down his life, they don't have life, right? And so now Jesus comes and God comes to us as men and he says, Look, husbands, the main way that you are called to exercise leadership in the home is via the sacrificial way that you pour out love on your wife. Which means this. A man who submits to God, a man who is rightly living out his calling, is not a man who would seek to dominate nor demean his wife. To be a leader in the home does not mean that we dismiss our wives, that we ignore our wives. No, to be a leader in the home means that a husband is for his wife in such a way that he is constantly laying down his own life, his own comfort, his own time, his own preferences, so that that wife and that family around him can flourish. That's the high calling of men in the home. What a tremendous calling it is. Husbands, you may look at me and say, but my wife doesn't do that. My wife doesn't lay down her life. She hasn't earned this. Well, men, you tell me, did we earn Jesus' dying on the cross for our sins? No, even while we were sinners, he came and laid down his life for us. It doesn't matter what your wife does or does not do. Your calling is to sacrificially love her, to lay down your life so she can flourish. Well, with this is another picture of what we are as men are called to in the home, and that is this, protection. Jesus laid down his life to save us, did he not, from our greatest enemies, Satan, sin, death. Now, let me be clear. Only Jesus can save you from those enemies. Only his death and resurrection can save you from the power of sin and death. And yet when he makes this comparison that husbands are to be like Christ, I think what he's showing us is we too are to be willing to lay down our lives to protect our families. There's an element of protection here that you see in the text. Now, you may say, Ryan, my wife's got a black belt. Well, I'd say praise God. If you get attacked, you have chances of surviving much better than my own, okay? But that does not mean in the midst that there is an attack that you stand behind your wife with a black belt. It does not mean that you send her in the middle of the night when there's that noise that, oh, you go and take care of this. No, the call of Scripture is protection. You put your life down for the sake of her. And if this is real in the physical world, think about this spiritually. I mean, we know that our greatest enemy is not anything physical. It's not flesh and blood, but what is it? Satan himself who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. Husbands, dads, you need to know this. That there is an enemy out there that seeks to steal, kill, and destroy your family. And your role is to pray for your family. 
We are called to be on our knees praying for protection. We're called to be battling that evil one, that enemy within our homes. We're called to protection. Then look at verse 26. It says, That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The third way you're called to lead in a unique way is in that of spiritual encouragement in your family. You see, Christ alone will one day present his church as a spotless, perfect bride. Again, husbands, you can't do that. You can't save your family from their sins. You cannot bring them into right relationship with God. You cannot do that. But just as Christ worked to to sanctify the church, which means to set it apart, to make it holy, we as husbands and dads are called to lead the way in our homes of helping prepare our families for eternity. Encouraging them, pushing them in such a way, instructing them in such a way that they are ready to meet Christ on the day that they die. This is one of our roles. I love uh, Ephesians chapter 5 later. Turn to it. It says this to uh, dads. It says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. What this means is that there are going to be many moments that where our calling as men is to lay aside our own leisure, our own desire to watch the game, our own desire uh, to do something else in order to make meaningful conversations happen at the dinner table. Or we're going to have to lay aside other things in order to to get in bed with our kids and pray for them. To get in bed with our wives and say, how can I be praying for you this week? We're called to this. To look for opportunities in our home to, to lead our family to spiritual truth. Maybe that's in a formal setting, like putting a devotional time together for your family. Maybe if you're not comfortable with that, maybe it's just in a car ride. Something happened at school. How are you leading your kids to truth? Spiritual encouragement. We see this over and over. Here's one of the most important ways that you can lead in your home. Be the first to admit when you fail. One of the greatest ways I think I display the gospel in my home is that when I fail, I try to apologize in front of anybody that I hurt. Whether that's getting in bed with my kids and saying, I'm sorry, son, that wasn't about you. That was about me. Or apologizing to Rachel, admitting when I'm wrong. These are pictures of the gospel. Husbands, dads, you are called to be the initiators in this. Now, this morning, let me just say this. I know we have single moms in the room. I know we have some uh, wives who, who their husband is not a believer in the room. Let me just say this. Where this ideal is lacking, you need to know this. God's grace is absolutely sufficient for you. There is a clear picture in scripture that God hears the cries of moms. <laughs> he hears your cry. Where this ideal is not met, his grace is sufficient. And yet men in the room, the responsibility is still yours. Here's the thing. God will not hold me accountable for the spiritual climate of your home. He won't hold any of the pastors accountable. He won't hold any of our children's workers or our youth workers accountable for the spiritual condition. He holds you responsible for the spiritual condition of your home. If you don't believe me, look at the story of Adam and Eve. Eve is the first one to take of the fruit and eat it. And yet, who does God call out first? Adam. What judgment does he delay to the very end? The final word of judgment, Adam. 
this morning. Where this ideal is not there, I'm telling you, God will meet it, but we are held responsible. The last thing that we see in this passage is that we are called to lead the way in provision. Verse 28 says, In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Now those words, nourish and cherish, I love those words. We could spend an entire sermon just talking about that. Someday we probably will. But this is a picture of of loving provision, of a kind of provision that seeks the health and the growth of everyone in the family. Now, as we talk about this idea of provision, I think there isn't a need to say what provision is not, okay? Man, provision is not a picture of you um, providing for every desire that any member of your family has. (laughs) There may be some desires that aren't good desires, right? I mean, my body, if it talks about the body, my body desires junk food all the time. But if I constantly am feeding that body with junk food, what's going to happen? I'm going to be sick and I'm going to have an early death. Provision does not mean we give everything that's wanted. No, what it simply means is this, that we work for the shelter and the care and the strengthening of the people that God has placed under our family. On that note, let me just also say this, that this passage does not mean that women can't provide for the, provide for the family financially as well. I've been asked at times, does this mean that I have to be the primary breadwinner by men? Friend, if you're asking that question, you're missing the point of that text. If your wife is brilliant, she does well in the business world, man, good for you and your family. That's fantastic. But again, that does not mean that while she's doing really well, it frees you up to just take place in a lot of hobbies, right? Or that you can all of a sudden now just sit at home and do nothing. Either way, you were called to work. You were called to be a piece of this provision of providing an environment of health and nurture and cherishing in your home. No matter what your wife's working situation, you have been given this role. It doesn't matter who makes more. One last thing that provision does not mean. Provision does not mean that you sacrifice these other commitments of loving your family sacrificially and encouraging them spiritually. Here's the thing. You cannot tell me that you're trying to please God or provide for your family if you are never home. Or if when you are home, you're so enthralled with your work that you have little to no energy for spiritual encouragement or loving sacrifice. Neither of those things, doing that kind of life, is not about your family. It is about you. And it's selfish. I know of many grown kids who have all the trinkets and toys that the world would offer, but they would trade it all for a dad who actually sacrificially loved them. That's not what provision means. So as you think about this big picture about the calling of men within the home, uh, where there is spiritual encouragement, there's protection, there is sacrificial love, where our wives feel heard, they feel responded to, they feel loved, our kids feel the same, our kids see an example of hard work, Our dads are the first to ask for forgiveness. Can you not see that a family with this kind of environment is going to flourish? Why? Because it's by his design. It's a tremendous calling that God has put on the men in this church family. That's the family. So now let's look really quickly at the church. If you would look at 1 Timothy 3, it's going to be on the screen. 
says this, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, and this this word overseer is synonymous with pastor or elder. It's a, a big picture of the role of pastor. It says this, He desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. That means that he is a one-woman man. Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. Now, we could go to other places in Scripture as well, but this is a picture of how God has called qualified men to lead in the role of pastor, elder, overseer in a church. Now, does this mean that women can't exercise their own leadership, their own giftings within a church? Of course they can. I mean, you think about our own church family. Literally, other than the role of pastor, women are exerting leadership at every level in our church family. This church would not happen. This Sunday morning would not happen apart from the leadership of women in our body. But what this does say is there is a unique calling upon qualified men. It's not just any men but qualified men to lead the church in such a way that all men, all women can use their giftings so that the church can flourish. You see, the kind of pastor that is harsh or uncaring or domineering is outside the bounds of what we just read about. They're unqualified. That's why these these things, these standards are so high. It may be that there are some in this room, some of you men who have been struggling, you've been wondering, questioning, is God calling to me to this? Paul says if if he seeks such a thing, he, he seeks a noble thing. I would encourage you to study these scriptures about the qualifications of, of a pastor or elder. Consider these things. Come and talk to me. I'd be happy to walk with you in that journey. So the question then becomes, what if I'm not a husband? What if I'm not a dad? Or what if I'm not a pastor? I know there are many of you in the room that don't fit any of those categories. What does this mean for me? Well, I would simply say this. Begin practicing these disciplines right now. Now, are you in the same kind of role over over, over any other people like a man is with his uh, family? No. You've not been given that place. But in, in appropriate ways with the people in your life, begin to practice these things. I've already started doing this with my seven-year-old son. Uh, already we are trying to, to formulate his life where he lovingly trusts me as his father and he submits to my authority. Why? Because we are hoping and praying that he will do the same, lovingly trust his own heavenly father and submit to his own authority. We want him to practice with me for the sake of understanding who his heavenly father is. In the same way, I already have conversations with my son. Son, protect your sisters. You're here to protect them. Son, you're here to sacrifice of what you want so that they can have what they want, so that they can do better. Son, sacrifice for your mom. When you screw up in one of these areas, go and ask for forgiveness. We are constantly pushing him. Why? Because right now he's a boy. 
But our greatest prayer is that he would be a man that lives up to the calling that God has on his life. So we encourage him, practice these things now. To all of you in this room that are single men, let me just say this. Push back against the tendency to be lazy with your time. Whatever God has given you to do, work at it with all of your heart. Not for man, but as an act of worship to God. Submit your life to his authority. Look for others that you can spiritually encourage. If you don't do these things now, you're not going to do them later. Think about any high school students or junior high students or elementary age students that you can begin to encourage in this church family. How can you lovingly do that? How can you lovingly sacrifice of your own desires for the people around you? Maybe it's in your workplace. Maybe it's in your neighborhood. Begin to practice these things. It may be that like Jesus or Paul or other great men in history, you may never get married or have kids. Yet you have the opportunity to live out these roles for the glory of God and for the furtherance of his kingdom. It is a high calling. This is the call of men. And yet, let's be honest. How many of you have perfectly lived this out? No one in this room, right? For all of us, young, old, It doesn't matter who we are in this room. For all of us, we have a hard time living out this calling because here's the thing. Not only is there a call of men, there there are some clear challenges that men face. And I want us to talk about that for just a moment. Go back to the book of Genesis. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 2, when God created man and women with all their differences, there was complete harmony, right? Right? Man and woman were in perfect relationship with God. They were in perfect relationship with one another. It was what the Bible calls shalom. There was this peace that existed in the Garden of Eden that was unlike anything we experience today. But when you turn to chapter 3, what happens? The serpent shows up, right? And he begins to convince Adam and Eve that, that God didn't really have their good in mind. He begins to convince them that that, that they could be wiser than God. He begins to convince them that, that instead of just being made in the image of God, they can be their own God. That they can be the rulers of their life. That God is not a trustworthy designer. He convinced them of all these things. And then we read this in chapter 3, verse 6. It says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, what happened? She took of its fruit and ate. And also she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. You see, in this first moment of human pride and unbelief, Adam and Eve rebelled against their designer, their creator. And the result of this sin is that All the perfection, all the harmony, all the shalom that was experienced in the garden was tarnished forever. It was utterly marred. Uh, To the core, it was marred. It was torn apart. Because now everything in our lives has what? The stench of death. Our relationships have the stench of death. There's brokenness in our relationship. Number one, our brokenness in our relationship with God. Because of sin, we cannot enter into his presence. We've talked about this many Sundays. But also, what do we find? That there is a separation between Adam and Eve. Uh, Once they were naked and unashamed, but now they're quick to cover themselves. They're filled with guilt and shame, and that affects their relationship as well. And this even affects the way that we live out our calling as men and women. You see, no longer would that work that God gave to Adam be life-giving 
But instead, what does he say? It's going to become cursed. What God called us to do, this design that he's given us, all of a sudden would no longer be easy. We read about that in verse 17. Go down there. It says, And to Adam God said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now you think about those words, cursed, pain, thorns, thistles, sweat. None of those are fun words. But this is what God's saying. This design, what I created you for, this work of cultivating and loving and doing all these things, no longer will that be easy. In fact, it will seem impossible. As I was talking earlier, some of you who are men were probably thinking that, Ryan, this picture that you're painting is impossible. Well, that's the impact of the fall of mankind into sin. But this shows up in two primary ways in the life of men and what the calling they have in their life. One of the primary ways this shows up is that men, instead of going for sacrificial love, what do they do? They turn to selfish passivity. I would encourage you men to to write this down. I want you to think about this. Selfish passivity. By that I mean this, that by action or inaction, they abdicate their responsibility before the Lord, just like Adam did in verse 6. If you go back to verse 6, yes, it is Eve that takes of the fruit, but what is Adam doing in that moment? Standing right next to her, utterly passive, right? And then God comes and he, he calls them out. And what does it say that Adam does? Does he stand up and say, yes, God, I own my failure. I own my sin. This is my fault. No, he hides. And then when God comes and he pulls him out of that hiding, what does Adam do? He blames Eve. It's a cycle. Every sin, ever since it goes, it gets further and further. Absolutely selfish, absolutely passive. Now, I realize that that story may seem too distant to you. So, men, let me just give you some modern-day examples of selfish passivity. And I want you just to ask right now, ask God, are there any of these things right now in my own life? Number one, the way that it shows up, it is in our, our failure to worship and to serve God like we're called to do. That's where we're first selfishly passive. Instead of doing what we're called to do, instead of being with him and knowing him and worshiping him and serving him, we look out for our own stuff, right? Another way this shows itself is by engaging in fantasy instead of reality. I'm afraid there are probably many men in this church that spend your time fantasizing about a different job. Fantasizing about a different wife, about a different living situation, about a different family. When God has put a real job, a real wife, a real family, a real life circumstances right in front of you. And he's put you there. He's placed you there to engage and to serve in those circumstances. Another way that this shows itself is, is when we are silent, when words are needed. Those opportunities where we have a moment to encourage our spouse or our kids, but we say nothing. Those moments where we have an encouraged to lead people to scriptural truth or to pray with somebody and we do nothing. Those moments where there needs to be a conflict. Some of us hate conflict. Some of us love conflict. But it doesn't matter. Those moments when God's word needs to come to bear on something. And yet we stay silent. 
Instead of engaging with our families, we sit on the couch watching the warriors or the giants all night long. Selfish passivity. How do I know about these things? Let me just say this. It's because I live them, okay? I do these things. Another way that selfish passivity can, can show up is, is by excuse-making. When we blame others instead of owning our own failures. Um, other ways, you've got laziness, apathy, gluttony, pornography, alcoholism. All these are things that we just kind of abdicate our responsibility and we run away from. We try to escape. This is one of the main challenges that men face. But then there's the flip side of this. Not only does it show up in in selfish passivity, but it also shows up in selfish aggression. And we read about this in verse 16 in chapter 3. If you would look at it. It says, To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. I want you to think about that phrase, he shall rule over you you. There's a lot that we could say about that phrase, but there's one thing I know that is not good. This is not how it was meant to be. What this is saying is that because of sin, there will now be an inclination in the heart of man toward ungodly aggression, oppression, and domination instead of sacrificial love, encouragement, and provision. Looking at our world, can you not tell how This evil plays out. Do you realize that today one in three women live in a house where abuse is taking place? It's a very sad reality. And I wonder if it's that much different in the church. Men, you need to hear me. If you're in this room and right now you are verbally abusive, you're physically abusive, to anyone in your family, you need to know this. God sees you. No one in this church may know, but God sees you. And yet, could it be that he brought you here today because he is lovingly calling you to change? He's calling you back to himself to live out the design that he has on your life. We will be happy to walk with you through that. But you've got to bring those things to light. You've got to tell somebody about that. There's many ways that spiritual aggression comes out. Manipulating others to get your way. Controlling others to get your way. Uh, Those flippant comments that we make to our wives or our kids or those in our lives that that are harmful. Husband, are you the one that's always nitpicking everyone around you? These are all ways that this form of selfish aggression comes out. Friends, it does not matter who you are. Even the godliest of men struggle in these areas. As I said earlier, these sermons are the hardest for me to preach. Because as I'm reading these texts, as I'm putting together this sermon, what is God doing? He is pointing the finger constantly at my own failures and mistakes. There are many nights where the very last thing that I want to do after a long day is to come in and spend the next three to four hours pouring myself out for the sake of my family. I don't want to dig into Rachel's heart to find out what's really going on. I don't want to take the kids to bed and spend the time leading them in truth or praying with them. I'm too tired. I want to sit on the couch. And friends, there's many nights that I do. I choose selfish passivity. There's other nights where I choose selfish aggression, where I take my frustrations from the day out on Rachel. Take it out on my kids. And for these things, I'm called to repent. You see, this is our 
problem. We are given a high calling, but we have some some very severe challenges because of our sin. So as we close this morning, is there any hope for men? Is there any hope for you to actually live out this calling that God's given to you? Well, it shouldn't surprise you, but the only hope for you to live out the way that you were designed to be is the gospel. It's the amazing news that God desires to take the heart of flesh that comes out in sin and comes out in selfish passivity and comes out in selfish aggression. And he desires to turn that heart into a heart of flesh. A heart of loving sacrifice, of pouring out our lives for the sake of others. This is what God desires to do. And how did he do it? Through sending his son. Because he loved us to take the punishment for sin that we deserved on the cross. You see, Jesus was the perfect sinless man that we are not. When Adam, where Adam and every single one of us in this room fell, Jesus was victorious. He perfectly submitted to God and resisted sin. He was anything but passive, voluntarily taking on Satan and sin and death through the cross. He was anything but aggressive. You think about Philippians 2, it says this, but Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Because of what Jesus has done, what does God say? You can receive forgiveness. If you submit your life to me, if you trust in what Jesus has done, I will take your heart of stone and create within you a heart of flesh. The Holy Spirit will come in you and will empower you to do what you cannot do on your own. You as men cannot live up to this calling on your own. You are sinful. But because of Jesus, my Holy Spirit will come with you and he'll make you more and more like Christ. He will enable you to do what you are called to do. Friends, if you feel utterly insufficient this morning, you need to hear this verse. What does God say? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. The call of many of the men in this room today is to simply confess your sin, to repent, to come to the feet of Jesus and say, God, I have not done this like I should. I've chosen to be passive. I've chosen to be aggressive. I've chosen my own way instead of you for us to come before the Father, confess our sin, repent, and to receive the grace that is available in God. In our weakness, that's where we begin to see God's power. That's the call of many men. I will tell you this. It is an amazingly powerful thing to see a man who is seeking to live a life like what we've talked about today. Just this last week, I had the opportunity to sit next to the hospital bed of such a man. A good number of you probably know one of our church members uh, named Daniel Macapagal. His uh, picture is going to be on the screen. I see Irma's here. Daniel is usually there sitting in this back area. Daniel right now is, is in his, sadly, his last days on this earth because of a breathing condition, COPD. As I sat with Daniel talking about death, knowing that death was coming. I will tell you this, it was amazing to sit next to him and for him with joy to be able to look at me and say, Ryan, there was a moment on May 14th, 1989, that I realized I was a man in need of a new heart. That no matter how good I was, Daniel was a son of a pastor, had done all the right things, but he said, even my good works were marred by sin. I needed a new heart. 
And on that day, May 14th, 1989, I submitted my life to Jesus. And from that moment on, he has changed me. Now, is Daniel a perfect man? No. Irma would tell you, Daniel's not a perfect man. Is Daniel's life one that people are going to write movies about, that they're going to write books about? Probably not. But I will tell you this, Daniel is a man who has desired with all of his life to sacrificially love the people that God has put in his place for the glory of Christ. This man is a man with utter joy. Why? Because he knows that he has poured out his life for others, for providing and protecting and caring for Irma and their kids. He's been a hard worker his entire life, setting the example high. In fact, he told me that one of his main roles that he saw right now is that he could be a spiritual encouragement, even in his last days, to everyone that he could. Even though he's not powerful enough to walk around or anything, he said this huge smile, and he said, I'm so grateful that God has given us iPads. I was like, why? It's kind of random. He said, because on Facebook, it still allows me to spiritually encourage all the people in my life to write notes, to write words of encouragement, to write scriptures. Right now, because of his condition, Daniel doesn't take any breath for granted. He knows that each breath, every breath, was given for the glory of God. Men, I don't know how many breaths you have left in this life. The question is this, though. Will you use them for your own selfish interest? Or use them to live out the calling that God has designed you for? You will only do so as you rely on Christ. As you allow those truths of what Jesus has done for you, the way that he was not passive, the way that he was not aggressive, that he poured his life out for you, the more that that changes your heart, the more you will go and do that likewise in your life. Ladies, I'm going to finish with you. I would simply ask this, that you seek to be an encouragement to the men in your life that are seeking to live out this calling. What I don't want to happen out of this sermon is for you to be hitting your husband the whole way home. Do not go from this sermon and all of a sudden just show him every time he fails. I will say this. Every single person in this room, you make a bad Holy Spirit. You're not him. But with the Holy Spirit within you, would you seek to encourage the men in your life that are seeking to pour out their lives? When you see a moment where they're doing something good, encourage them that. Pray for the men in your life. That we could make much of Jesus and so flourish as a church family. The high calling is clear. The challenges are clear. But glory be to God, because of Christ, we can live out this calling. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you this morning that you were not just an example I thank you that Jesus was not just an example of sacrifice, but by his sacrifice, we have hope this morning. Thank you, Jesus, for taking the punishment for sin. Thank you, Jesus, for taking the punishment that we deserve for our selfish passivity, for our selfish aggression, for our sin. Thank you for putting a new heart within us through allowing your Holy Spirit to come in us and to change us from the inside out. Take our hearts of stone and to create hearts of flesh. 